Okay, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is Monday, June the 12th. I'm delighted to be joined by Omar Najiya, Global Head of Derivatives at BB Energy, Clyde Russell, Asia Commodities and Energy Columnist for Thomson Reuters, and Jamie Ingram, Senior Editor at MIS, Middle East Economic Survey. Thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen, to help us shed some light on where these markets may be going this week ahead. Omar, let me start with you. We just showed a survey result of a question we had last week, which is showing that the pe- people are believing the oil market outlook, which is essentially bearish, um, more than uh, stock market sentiment in terms of where the global economy is going. We, you know, we, would you agree now that we, have a, we are in a bear market for crude? We've seen a 40% drop year on year, et cetera. Where do you think the direction is going in the next quarter? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, so so oil has come off since March 2022. So is oil in the bear market? I don't think it comes as a surprise to many. It's been in the bear market since March 2022. The question is, is it going to continue lower or have we seen the lows? That's, I mean, that's that's the question at least we're trying to answer. So uh, no, it doesn't surprise bear market. And it's been in one since March 2022. Um, is it going to go lower from here, take out the lows we saw on WTI, about 63, 64, and something around $70 on Brent? Uh, we think the odds are, 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 I mean, the odds are close, but but I still think that, that those lows that we saw uh, hold. So I think $70 Brent holds, I think, I think 63, 64 on WTI holds, and I think we see a higher market. So I think we see a trend change rather than break those lows and continue on the downtrend that's been um, a year and three months in the making. Okay, so Clyde, would you agree with that? I mean, that means that Omar is saying he kind of believes OPEC's story of, yes, OPEC's cutting to support prices in the interim, but its forecasts are still bullish for the second half of the year, as is the IEAs. But then we have Goldman Sachs headline today, saying they're revising their demand growth outlooks again downwards. So, you know, we're really stuck in this yo-yo, aren't we, at the moment? Yeah, it's actually quite an interesting market. If you actually look for the last few months, in fact, pretty much the whole year, oil's been in a sort of broad $70 to $90 range, if you're talking Brent, and spent more of the time around $75 than it has above $80. It briefly got up close to $90, almost got below $70, but didn't. Um, so basically, you're looking at a fairly narrow range. Now, what has actually happened to keep it in that narrow range is basically OPEC plus, and now lately the Saudis acting unilaterally, they've they've been working very hard to keep it above 70. So you would argue that all this cutting uh, of production, all that has achieved is it's kept the price above 70. My own feeling is that if the world is heading towards a recession, and certainly the economic indicators that I like to watch, uh, like purchasing managers indexes and things like that, certainly suggest that um, you know things are going to get worse before they get any better. Um, is $75 oil an appropriate level for a world economy that is slowing and likely heading into recession? Um, I would argue probably not. So I think OPEC plus is, is, is leaning against the wind. Um, the big hope is that somehow we have a huge demand explosion in the second half. That's what the IEA is forecasting. It's what OPEC's forecasting. It's what Goldman and a bunch of other people are forecasting. And they're really basing that forecast on, on a strong recovery in China, India remaining pretty solid, 
and you know the rest of the world not having a, 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 um, having a very shallow slowdown and certainly avoiding the worst of a recession. Um, those are things that could happen. Would I think it's a central case right now? Uh, I'm probably I'm, I'm I'm not so optimistic. I think um, you know when you start to tighten monetary policy as much as it has been tightened globally, then you know you make a recession all the much more likely. And you know that is not going to be positive for oil, and I don't think China can ride to the rescue. Okay, thanks, Clyde. Jamie. So on that point, OPEC is is you know obviously been cutting. It's, we have evidence that in May those cuts were certainly implemented. The previous cuts to those announced last week by the main the main players there who who, are, who have been really controlling uh, supply uh, in terms of marginal supply. So you know. What, what is OPEC going to do next, Jamie? It's just announced another 1 million barrel of Saudi unilateral for July, which presumably will happen. But no matter what they do, we're not we're not inching above this 75 max, you know, sort of headline number. Um, where, what do you think their thinking is now after last week's meeting? Hmm. Yeah, Diana, well, as, as you kind of said there, it wasn't OPEC plus that acted last weekend in terms of looking at the near-term situation. It was Saudi Arabia by itself. You know, it was very noticeable that unlike the voluntary cuts that uh, rolled in in May, uh, where it was Saudi Arabia acting in concert with the UAE, with Kuwait, with Iraq, with other members. This is Saudi Arabia going solo. And actually, they didn't even flag it up um, during the meeting with with their other allies. They just realized that, hang on, nobody else here has the appetite to cut anymore at the moment. Um, so after the meeting concluded, Saudi Arabia just said, hey, guys, hang around a minute. We're going to take another million barrels a day off the table from July. Um, it's also interesting looking at how this is structured. Uh, Saudi Arabia said it's for July. It's potentially extendable. They haven't said when they're going to be announcing whether it's going to be extended into August and beyond or not. Um, and we don't know what the metrics that they're looking at to decide whether to extend or not will be. So the market's kind of um, going to be guessing a lot in the weeks to come as to whether this is just very much a temporary situation with this million off the table or whether this is something that's going to extend uh, for Q3 as a whole or potentially right through to the end of 2023. And that's going to have a huge impact on, on um, global supply demand balances and inventories going forward. Um, as you know, as the others have alluded to here, China is really one of the big, um, big issues here. Uh, we've had some weak looking industrial figures starting to creep out of China now that should probably feed through into forecasts for global uh, demand balances. We've got the IEA report coming out on Wednesday, I think, OPEC's report coming out on Tuesday. Certainly, I would expect them to revise down what's still their very bullish demand outlooks. Um, but I expected that last month and they stayed pat. So we'll see what happens this week. Okay, Omar, I mean, on that point of, of Saudi doing its unilateral cuts for July, and it can always do month by month adjustments as we as it's been doing for the last two, three years, really, in terms of this flexible policy. But the other thing that, that the meeting at last week concluded was that the previous cuts that have been announced in the last few months will be extended likely into 2024. That was another little sort of subtle hint at, you know, where we, you know, we'll hold that sort of as an option. Would, did that make any difference to market sentiment? And would that in terms of looking beyond the next six months? I, I think basically if, if people are going to look at the wording of OPEC and what exactly they say and and what exactly they do, you know, I mean, you know, maybe I, I really don't have time for that kind of stuff. So I think basically the general thing is OPEC are there to defend the price, okay? Now, 
what price, how long, are they going to go extend, are they getting $70, 63.75? I don't know. But basically what they're telling you unequivocally is we're going to defend the price. And if you want to sell, sell, then we're threatening you with, quote, unquote, ouchie. Okay? I definitely don't want to ouch. So basically, I'm not going to be selling. I'm looking for somewhere to buy something, to at some point buy this market. Um, so definitely no ouching for me and definitely big picture. You know, and the stuff about China, we've been hearing China's, you know, I think since since 2014, I think I've been hearing that China's about to collapse, right? At 14, 15, 16, 17. And each year it's something different, right? And it hasn't done so. I don't think it will. Um, and, you know, the incremental demand's always been in the East for at least 20 years. You know, the West has been more to do with Green and Greta and, and, and you know, that kind of stuff. I don't expect that to change. Um, so the East is, is, is where demand growth is, is at. So, um, the, the, I mean, everything is, everything is possible. So, so if you look at the market right now, you can make a very good argument for the price breaking below, because people like Brent, breaking below $70 on, on Brent, right? And meaningfully slow. And you can make the same case that, you know, we're going to break and, and take out $90, right? The question is, if you have money to allocate, which one is, 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 is a better bet? Right now, it seems to be that $90 is a better bet, simply because, first of all, the market is already short. People, you know, um, uh, hedge funds are very short the market. Um, and second of all, it seems to me that maximum pain is going to be to the upside. So in other words, if the market starts to tick up and everybody says, it's, uh, you know, China, um, I don't know what, economy, blah, 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 and the market keeps ticking up, they're going to start to panic and they're going to start screaming buy to cover their shorts at any price. So that's why I think on the balance of probability, I think this market heads higher. I think basically maximum pain is to the upside. I think if they panic, they don't, they're not going to sit there and say, you know, the price is this, it should be this, we're just going to wait. No, they're going to start screaming and they're going to be told, close your positions, shut, take your loss, and the price is going to uh, woof to the upside. That's, that's what I think. Admittedly, it's, it's a close call, but, but I'd much rather be long rather than short. Okay. Uh, Clyde, I mean, on the point of, of again, just sticking to, to, to OPEC, but more broadly, we have a bulletin on our bulletin, uh, an article today saying that U.S. crude exports could benefit from the additional cuts that OPEC keeps adding. Um, do you think that's the case? Do you see that dynamic changing? Would, would U.S. exports going to be impacted by that or OPEC? Uh, you know, is, is OPEC's demand security secure, if you like, into Asia and elsewhere? Well, I think we can already see quite a few interesting things happening in this space. One, um, you get a, a quite a good idea of U.S. exports to Asia quite far in advance because of the shipping time. So we already are looking at July U.S. exports into Asia at a record high, something north of two million barrels a day. Um, that's obviously being incentivized by WTI being slightly cheaper, but it also is basically, you know, um, the, the Middle East oils, the official selling prices, you know, they've been actually raising them against the benchmarks rather than cutting them. And they've been taking output off the table as well. So 
uh, Asian refiners are very happy to turn to US crude if, if they can and if, if it's at a reasonable price. I think you also got to look at the Chinese. They are buying, continuing to buy huge volumes of Russian crude. Um, they've been upping, as far as we're aware, their purchases from Iran as well. And, um, you know, there's even a little bit more Venezuelan oil flowing around. So they are looking very much for alternatives to those now relatively expensive or relatively expensive to other grades of the Middle Eastern crudes from Saudi, from the, the Emirates, from the Kuwaitis, that sort of thing. So I think, yes, that's a positive. The other thing that you can look at is if OPEC plus is successful in keeping oil prices above 75, they probably prefer them above 80. All that actually does is incentivize US production to continue at relatively high levels. I mean, it's at relatively high levels now. That's probably a hangover from the high prices we saw last year. Um, that takes there's a, it obviously works with a bit of a lag. But if prices remain, you know, sort of uh, above 75, 80, you know, the US producers are going to say, well, we, we can continue to pump more. So, that, you know, in some ways, it does um, boost the sort of supply response from people outside of OPEC plus. Um, by keeping the price uh, at a relatively high level. And one final thought on, on this as a demand side. I, I've followed what the Chinese actually physically do quite a lot. And it's quite clear that when they believe the price has risen too high or too quickly, they stop importing um, large amounts. They will still import a base amount. That's probably about 10 million barrels a day. But that sort of extra that they like to do, um, if, if prices are, they deem them to be reasonable, that kind of disappears. So the more successful OPEC is, the less likely the Chinese will actually meet their bullish demand forecasts. So China's uh, bullish demand forecast is a function of price. If the price remains what the Chinese deem to be reasonable, and I would say that currently that would be uh, around the 70, 75 mark, then the Chinese will continue to import. Their imports were strong in May. They might tail off a little bit in June, but they will continue to import. If the price goes back above 85, 90 bucks, I would imagine that the Chinese will cut back on their imports and dip into their stockpiles. Okay, and Jamie, talking about Chinese imports and Russia, um, you know, how is OPEC feeling today about that? Obviously, Russia continues to export to China, to India, increased amounts as well. There have been some comments that Saudi's getting a little bit maybe fed up with, with the fact that Russia is not doing its part and will not do its part, let's admit, um, as long as it's in a war, it needs the revenue. So do you see that impacting uh, Saudi thinking with an OPEC going forward beyond this point? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that even before the war, it was a pretty constant thing that Russian compliance was very low. Um, it's always a political issue between Russia and Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC+. Plus. Um, they need Russia on board. They understand that if they push Russia too hard, then Russia is going to throw its toys out of the pram and uh, and the whole thing could fall apart, essentially. So that's been a dynamic even before the current situation. So yes, they're going to push Russia to at least appear to be doing more to comply. But I think that the idea of 100% compliance with this 500,000 barrel a day voluntary cuts is, is just not going to happen. Sure, if if somehow sanctions get to the point whereby Russia actually is physically unable to supply the amount that it's supplying at the moment, then we'll get those cuts. But on a voluntary basis, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, with regards to being fed up about losing market share to, to Russia in Asia, sure, in an ideal world, this wouldn't be the case for them, but they, are, they do have the potential to fill in, backfill into Europe and other places that Russia has been pushed out of. So it swings and roundabouts on that front. And I think also, it's worth pointing out that if 
if Saudi Arabia, for instance, was that concerned about losing market share to Russia and China, that we'd have seen a very different dynamic with the OSPs. Um, they keep pushing them up, as Clyde pointed out. I think that some of that has been just a recognition of the obvious, that, the, that there was less demand for their crude oil um, for, for July delivery. And that's so they're trying to squeeze as much revenue out of that as possible. But at the end of the day, we've seen that if push comes to shove, they're more than willing to defend their position to get into a you know market share battle, as we saw back in 2020 with Russia. They're not doing that at the moment. So I think they're pretty sanguine about the situation overall. Okay, and what about Jamie? Just sticking with you, let's talk about Iran because, of course, it's part of OPEC, but it hasn't been subjected to the cuts clearly for obvious reasons. Now we're seeing a trickling of, you know, news articles saying, "Oh, how many?" You know, we have an article saying, "Oh, we're not opposed to a deal with the West." Something's going on. We know there's been talks behind the scenes. Um, you know, is that is that going to impact sentiment towards their outlook for more Iranian production coming back sooner rather than later? Honestly, when it comes to Iran, I believe it when I see it, um, especially with the US, you know, we're going to start going into election season just around the corner almost. And can you really imagine a new JCPOA deal sealed just before the presidential elections kick into into gear? And then, you know, obviously with the potential transition in the US, you know, if there's another term for President Trump, then I don't think we're going to see an Iranian deal there. But even if I'm wrong about that and we do see something cobbled together fairly soon, um, it's going to, you know, Iran's already exporting about one, 1. 1.5 million barrels a day on, on a good day. Um, it's going to take them a long time to be ratcheting up production and exports back towards the JCPOA levels. So in terms of making room for Iran, that's not really a consideration for OPEC for for at least another year, I think, before volumes start being um, on that order of magnitude above where they are at the moment. Okay, and well, there we have our survey question, which, which kind of of the addresses that how would the Iran-US nuclear agreement impact oil markets if we were to get an agreement? You're saying, Jamie, we won't have one for uh, a, another year and a bit, which which kind of is a long time, obviously, uh, for that to be hanging around. But would that be bullish, bearish, or have no impact if indeed we saw some traction uh, on that front? Uh, Omar, let's just go back to you and talk a bit about the other part of the barrel, which is products, and uh, any sort of Outlook there, uh, they're taking into account demand forecast, taking into account Asian demand for jets. Uh, summer is coming up, travel season, gasoline, driving season is in, in play already in the US. Have we seen that shift in the last week or two? No, I think basically, so um, they, nothing is happening with uh, products. The only thing that's happening with products is instead of going from A to B, they're going from A to C to W and then to B. So all that's changed basically is the flows have changed, but in terms of uh, amounts or uh, uh, demand or supply or whatever, it's still all the same, right? So um, I think world all demand last year was plus or minus 100 million barrels a day. And oil demand this year is, you know, surprise, surprise, 100 million pounds a day, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, but it certainly doesn't. So again, I think basically the, the, the focus is not about, you know, this week, next week, blah, 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 but, but it's important to try and keep in mind that we've been in a downtrend since March 2022. At some point, that ends, right? Now, some people could argue it's not going to end until 2024, 2025, maybe, you know, 2030. Who knows? But what I'm saying is at these kinds of levels, 
you've got to be looking for when when you have that when you have that turn. So I think when and when you have that turn, it's also important to understand it's not going to be about you know markets are super bullish and demand in Asia is gonna whatever and there's a new car and other. it's not going to be any of that. It's going to be basically closing the 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 positions that people have, closing the shorts that people have had for a year and three months, right? So so the the bullish impetus is not you know something that's um, you know I, I don't know how better to 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 explain it. The bullish impetus can be simply closing bearish positions. Okay, so not necessarily being too long. Clyde, I'm on that front of, of, of products. What's the latest with Chinese sort of product exports quotas? There, what the indicators there that give us obviously how demand is doing domestically and how perhaps regional demand is 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 doing. Well, I mean, we did see a, a massive increase in, in their product exports in the first quarter. They're still fairly high, but they are starting to taper down. What has actually happened is um, the refiners have basically used up most of their quotas. Yes, there are some new quotas about, but they're not uh, the massive volumes. So I would expect to see uh, Chinese product exports continue at a reasonable clip, but uh, certainly nothing like the almost 60% jump that we had in the first quarter. Um, it was a very simple economic win for the Chinese to to stimulate the economy. They wanted growth, they wanted it fast, uh, buying in crude, exporting products, making a nice profit, especially if you were exporting Russian crude as products, um, was uh, was an easy win for them. Um, they're not that interested in continuing that. They also wanted to make sure they had enough domestic fuel stockpiled and uh, to meet their summer demand. Um, we haven't actually seen a huge amount of, of diesel demand. So if there are product exports from China, it's most likely to be in the diesel. Uh, we have seen the margin for diesel um, fall quite sharply in Asia. So that's kind of the dynamic we have at the moment. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's it's one of these things that can change very quickly. If the Chinese decide they want more stimulus in their economy, or they see an opportunity to make money, then you know they, they will be quite happy to import crude and export products. But at the moment, I expect that to taper off, which is another reason I'm not so super bullish on Chinese oil imports because I expect that they'll be exporting less product. Okay, Jamie, let's talk a bit about macro uh, uh, policy. Uh, let's think, you know, and how that might be impacting thinking as well. We had our uh, survey question from from last week that we showed about equity versus oil sentiment. Equities are sort of flying high at the moment because of, you know, bullish some bullish stocks maybe. But um, in terms of Fed policy and how that might be impacting thinking, of course, we don't know which way it will go. A lot of people are saying it might skip the next rate rise, but who knows, it will start to taper back. You know, a lot, again, it's, it's very 50-50 at the moment, the sentiment there. Um, and there is a big meeting this week of us coming up. So any, any expectations there from the market, uh, any sort of uh, things that are built into prices from that? Well, I think, as you say, expectations seem to be leading toward leaning towards the Fed staying put for this month and skipping a rate rise. Although, you know, if it's going to go one way, it's going to be up uh, rather than down. Um, I think, in terms of a lot of market participants, when it comes to interest rates, they're saying that look, this takes three, four, five months for the impact to actually feed through into the broader economy uh, before we get the real fallout from these rate rises. And they've been coming thick and fast. So we still haven't even seen the implications feeding through from previous rate hikes. Um, so a lot of people I talk to, they're saying that, look, 
this is an um, you know we are still in an unprecedented situation whereby rates have been increased so consistently so rapidly we are worried about what's still in, lurking in the system regardless of what the fed even does next so that, so from the people that i'm speaking to there's quite a bit of hunkering down on the on that perspective just being there could well be gremlins lurking in the system that are going to come out in the next next couple of months still okay so how can we possibly be bullish on oil the second half bullish beyond here where we are if really the trickle through effect of these rate rises is, is really going to in the US economy and European economy. We haven't seen it yet. We see great employment figures. We see, you know, the US is looking pretty healthy. You know, so so given that shallow recession that's still expected in both regions, um, should we be bullish at all? I don't understand. So are you saying that it's going to be a shallow we have, recession? We could, have a long, we could have a long, you're saying we could, we could have an upside to prices from here. All right. Yeah. But how can we believe that if... If we if we believe the other story, which is that the Fed is still going to you know raise rates, and also that what they've done so far still hasn't really hit the economies yet, and it's going to. Okay, well, uh, I mean, two, okay, so two parts. So, um, the U.S. economy, if you measure it by the S and P, has been going up, right? So then, by that. Uh, analogy, oil should go up because the S&P is rising. So you, nobody has a problem believing that, right? Because S&P is going up, so oil can go up. But the S&P can't go down and oil go up because that's a no-no, okay? So if you look and you go and you put a chart up and you look and you go back to whenever it is, starting 2008, go forward, you will find three instances at least in which basically oil has either gone vertical and the S&P has gone vertical the other way, or the S&P has gone up vertically and oil has gone vertically the other way. Yeah, so you, you have three instances. So at the end of the day, it's not about, you know, um, there is no kind of uh, correlation between the S&P and oil. And if you want to measure the, you know, the US economy, blah, 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 then tell me what that is because it's, it's not a number and, and you can't really relate it to oil. Can the S&P and oil move in different directions? 100%. Can the US dollar skyrocket and oil go up? 100%. Can they go both lower together? 100%. So there is no kind of statistically significant correlation between the S&P and oil. And that's a fact. Now, some people can believe it, some people can't, and that's up to them, and uh, you know that's fine. But there is no statistically significant correlation between the S&P and oil, and, and that's what I understand to be the US economy or a measure of it, the S&P. If, if it's measured another way by, you know, things are bad and they are, then I can't measure it, so. Okay, you, you mentioned, Omar, just sticking with you, you mentioned the US dollar. We've seen it kind of uh, gain some support in, in recent days, let's say. Uh, any outlook for that in terms of what it might be testing up or down? Yeah, so I think the US dollar will get from where it is right now to maybe something around 108% is measured by DXY. So currencies are measured against other currencies. So the dollar index, the strength of the dollar against the other currencies that it trades against, we think will go up from here, probably towards 108, um, which would mean that the euro falls somewhere towards 103, uh, GBP falls somewhere towards 105. But but that's all kind of nuanced. The big idea is the dollar is going to basically be sold off 
from where it is now, over 100, 104, 105, 108, all the way down to sub 89%, which will mean that the euros will see new highs, that GDP will see new highs, and that's over a very long period of time. If you look at uh, the dollar index, the strength of the dollar, it's been rallying for about 30, 12, 13 years. So it, it at least needs to correct that, which means that it, it's this, this kind of weakness in USD and strength in the pound and sterling is going to last for not weeks, but, you know, years, maybe like two, three, maybe I don't know how, how many, but, but a long time. Okay, so buy your euros now if you can, or whatever else, other currency. Uh, there's just our survey result. No one thinks it's going to be bullish, which is not surprising. Uh, bearish, 60, no impact, 40%. Um, that's quite a big percentage for no impact at all, if it were to, to come to the fore. I suppose people are sceptical as to whether we're going to see any progress there. Clyde, I will go to you for the last thoughts today. And in the context of the US dollar comments Amar just made, but give us a bit of your view on Asia co other commodities, you know, commodities outlook, demand for Asian commodities, um, in terms of what those are showing us about industrial demand, etc., beyond uh, energy, if you like, products. Well, it's quite interesting. The one I always look at most um, often is iron ore. And, you know, again, that's a very China-dominant trade. It buys 70% of seaborne iron ore. Uh, we're still seeing fairly solid volumes, but we're starting to see a bit of price pressure. It's one of those weird things that um, <laughs> bad economic news sent sometimes actually causes iron ore to rally because everybody believes Beijing is going to go and stimulate the economy more than it already is. So I think that kind of brings us down to that sort of thing of China has had a sluggish recovery, an uneven recovery from its uh, after it ended its COVID lockdowns. Um, and that's sort of still continuing. There's still optimism out there that they will, um, you know, manage to stimulate the economy and get things going again. Um, I would be very cautious about get, betting against China. They have a quite good track record of doing this, but there's still other things that is beyond their control. So, like the manufacturing exports, if the world does have a recession. So, for me, it's all very finely balanced at the moment. We're starting to see some areas of pressure: iron ore, <laughs> copper. Um, you know, th th those are, are not looking that good. Uh, but they're certainly not, you know, indicating a major crash ahead or anything bad like that. It's it's just a sort of bouncing along in this kind of uneven period of lingering uncertainty. Okay, well, we'll finish on that. And that seems to be the theme of the moment, is there's this lingering uncertainty with things pretty much in the balance, despite the fact that OPEC's making moves, etc. But thank you so much. We've run out of time today, gentlemen. Thank you to Jamie, Clyde, and Almar for joining us today for the week ahead.